Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm Kia. And this is the Journey to Transformation. Welcome. Welcome back. What's outside the window? Just lots of people running because we're recording from Battersea Park. Battersea Park. Shout out to Battersea Park. Whoop. So lots of people are running. I had no idea that this many people ran. (laughs) It's January. Everybody runs. (laughs) Literally, I've never seen so many people committed to running and it's wild. Yeah. Our gym's been a bit crazy, hasn't it? Yeah. Well, the branch that's by my place has been absolutely rammed. January motivations or New Year's resolutions. Yes. Get fit. Yeah. So loads of people are running and lots of people are also on scooters or those, what are those round things that people go on? <laughs> it sounds so old. Round like thing. I've just lost the word. You just stand on it. An e-scooter. Oh, like thing. the hoverboard. Things. Yeah. Okay. Lots of people on that. Okay. Whizzing around. Be a good track for those things. Jassy Park. Yeah. People probably playing out their holiday gift. Yeah. Teams of them whizzing around. Fun. Also mm. lots of dogs. So trying not to keep looking at the beautiful dogs that will pass. Okay. You should have closed the window. <laughs> no, we're good. Okay. <laughs> that time when we were recording in the new forest and I saw deer behind you, I had to shout it out. So you never know. I might need to shout out something exciting. Sorry, listeners in advance. Okay. Let's just make sure that the threshold is dear old tiny forest pony yeah okay okay yeah it's got to be that interesting okay cool Cool. what are people talking about in the world right now harry harry i listened to another podcast the other day and they were like oh we don't want to talk about this but everyone's talking about it okay that's how i feel do we have to talk about it just so that we get an algorithmic boost (laughs) hashtag harry hashtag harry (laughs) yeah maybe hashtag's there Although I did it for free from yeah, an audible trial. <laughs> I wouldn't have done it unless it was free. And I was just curious. Of all the things you could have spent that free trial on, <laughs> that's my point. It's not, oh, I wouldn't pay for this. It's that you had a free one and that's what you chose to use your free on. Oh, guilty. So guilty. He's also reading it. And it feels really weird because it's not like he's genuinely saying, oh, this time me and granny at Balmoral, like he's genuinely saying it. You can tell, obviously he's reading it. So it feels a bit disingenuous because he's like reading <laughs> It's disingenuous the for you to read from the book, you and your ghostwriter wrote. you know what I mean? It's not right. like it's a natural, I'm just having a chat. We did this and we went here. Did you catch that dig I made? No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say? Say it again. I said he and his ghostwriter wrote. Oh, okay. You know what a ghostwriter is? Yeah, someone who writes it for you, know. Yeah. Most celebrities will use a ghostwriter. Yeah. They'll yeah, use okay, somebody fine. who like helps them write their thing. Fine. And I did actually see who it was. I think they released who it was. Oh, did they? Yeah. I was just guessing that he used one. So it's nice to have that confirmed. Yeah. So I guess on a disingenuous level. His PR team would have approved everything. Yeah. I said. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anything you want to reflect on in terms of what you've been listening to? No, not really. Okay. It's as I expected. Although as people are revealing it is very detailed i mean it's like losing his virginity yeah in an alleyway or something and the way he talks about uh, his pudger is how he describes it. gross <laughs> yeah. can um, you just translate what that means for the non-british people i know what that means now but can we say that kind of thing on a podcast yeah. when he talks about his penis yes there's <laughs> okay. nothing wrong with the anatomical description of body parts <laughs> but i guess it's what he's talking about don't shame so, people's bodies yeah you're right yeah there's Quite a bit of detail around that and stuff. It's and nice to know that the wealthy fucking alleys too. Yeah. <laughs> Fine, pubs. I'm talking um, about you. Oh, rubbish. <laughs> Shush. <laughs> that is simply not true. Debs, Adam, you listening? Oh my God, stop it. <laughs> Cutting explicit. <laughs> no, I'm joking. There's a Lawrence Prince, um, by the way. Oh God, I was going to say something else. And how he talks about that like, he fancied his matrons. <laughs> 
Okay. When he was at, I think, like a boarding school or whatever. What's a matron? A matron is... A surrogate mother. Yeah, who at the boarding schools would look after the boys in terms of making sure that their clothes washed, making sure that they like had dinner, they went to bed on time, that they... It's very edible. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Say it again. Edible. Edible. No, yeah. not edible. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, moving on. <laughs> Say it again, edible. Yes, like an Oedipus oh, complex. Oh, yes, okay. That's what I mean. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, like yes. surrogate mothers, yes. his tragedy with his own mother. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Definitely that comes into it. I'm going to want to van life therapize him, but this is what this van does. He talks about Pat the matron, who is not as attractive. But Why? I don't know. Rude? Yeah. <laughs> If you're listening, let me have a good look at you first. (laughs) (laughs) Some bits like that are humorous. I did chuckle to myself. I am all in favor for people standing in their truth. I think that people have also the right to decide whether or not they want to consume that. Yeah, fair. And a lot of people do. $100 million Netflix deal they got. And who knows how much he got for that book will be loads. Yeah, fastest selling nonfiction book ever. There you go. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. I guess one of the main things that he's been saying is that if people are going to talk about me, I may as well put my own narrative out, which I agree with. Yeah. yeah. And laugh all the way to the bank, bitches. I bet that's what he did. Skipping along. Probably, yeah. I bet he's got a lot of overheads, though. (laughs) Yeah, that too. (laughs) Houses, security stuff. Okay. There you go. Standing in your truth. Yeah. This is probably going to be the highest listened to (laughs) podcast because we've mentioned Harry. We've mentioned penises. Yeah. You've talked about fucking in alleys. Yeah. And we're only 11 minutes in. It's been a hectic 10 minutes. What are we even talking about? How do we transition from that fantastic beginning? We can't. Can I just tell you about these donuts? Yeah. I'm really excited about them. They're not sponsoring us, but I really wish they would. So for listeners, there's actually a pink and yellow box on the table, like a long box. And it says urban legend. I'm really into these donuts right now. They're a lower calorie donut, 30% less calories. That's wild. And it says on the box, never high in fat, never high in sugar, never high in calories. That's a bold statement. <laughs> 163 calories for these donuts each. That's really good. It is good. Probably shouldn't be eating these donuts every day, which is effectively what I do. <laughs> Balanced diet, everybody. This is my news resolution. Eat more donuts. I'm going to save this one for you. That's so nice of you. Thank you. The one that's got more of this brown coating. These donuts are so good. <laughs> it doesn't even bother me that I'm mentioning them without any kind of benefit to me. Wow. That is a big sell, everyone. Mm-hmm. Been Legend Donuts. Check them out. I'll put some links in the show notes. They're and so if good. you want to sponsor us, we are very good at selling donuts. <laughs> Don't use that voice when you're talking about donuts. Okay, now we can talk about transitioning into our favorite topic. From donuts to racism. Yes. We are talking about racism in the sector today. Racism in the humanitarian development nonprofit sector. We touched on racism a fair few times across this podcast. It remains a really key topic for us to discuss. For the main reasons that I'm always experiencing various forms of racism and you're racist. Yeah, and I'm understanding my white supremacy. Say you're a racist. I'm a racist. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm understanding my role in perpetuating racism and white supremacy. Yeah, that is why it remains an important topic for us to discuss. You racist. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's why we're talking about it. But what's happening in the sector that means we're talking about it right now? More generally, you mean? Yeah. I think it's because people are getting called out for their bullshit. Okay. 
I don't think this is new, right? We're not just coming to a place where we're like, oh, wait, hang on. We might be racist. This sector is rooted in racism, in white supremacy, in colonialism. We've been talking about white saviors since it's been this constant tension that we in this space struggle with and continue to struggle with and will likely continue to struggle with it until the end of time. So I think that it's not a new thing. I think that as our social consciousness is transitioning and we're being forced to acknowledge how shitty we are, I do think that people within organizations are now becoming more vocal because now it's okay to call it out and you know that you're probably going to have a soft landing publicly, right? Like I talk about all kinds of stuff now that I didn't feel safe to talk about before because I know if I like put it out there in the universe, somebody's going to be like, yeah, yep, white people as well. Yes. When normally it was a kind of like, mm, like a side conversation with other black and brown people. Yeah. Then you could just be like, but now I think it's in a space so much and I think it should be in the space more, but it is now so much. The saturation rate has reached such a level that now organizations are getting pretty fucked over when they're not acknowledging it. I don't think they're acknowledging it because they are like, we need to stop being complete and total pieces of shit to our employees, to our clients, to our whatever. I think now if you don't, you're going to get fucking dragged. So now it's if you're silent or not talking about it or even not being called out for it, the spotlight is on you. I have more questions about organizations that are not talking about it in any way and or have not had a bit of a spotlight on them because it's almost like, what are they now hiding or what's now not being brought to the surface would be my thought on that. What companies do you think about like that? (laughs) (laughs) Or are we naming them? Because I can't think of a single one that is like a very common one that there aren't sparks of something coming out in our space anyways oh i can in the mine action space nobody is being called out for anything and there are lots of organizations that have just white leadership still and have no i'd be curious to look i'm just looking now to see it's on Glassdoor. The one that we're talking about, they pay lip service to issues pertaining to gender and diversity. They are structurally racist and white ex-military men making most of the decisions. (laughs) So that's what I mean is like somebody saying something like I can't think of a single organization where people are being completely silent about it in the space. So like that's more what I'm talking about. Like internally. Okay. Some point. Yeah. Okay. I just think it's like how much are we listening? How much are those voices coming to the surface? I think it's okay now to say something. I yeah. guess is more what I mean. Yeah. See, there you go. Somebody agrees with you about that particular organization who shall not be named. I probably wrote that. <laughs> and do I know the person who wrote that? Uh, yeah, that's a fair point. And I guess maybe even I don't want to give white people a free pass in any way, but like reflecting a little bit on my own realization of some of these things, a real kind of misunderstanding or like having zero knowledge of how these things manifest, especially when you work in organizations that are primarily white people. And there's already those like power and colonial dynamics of how you work with or staff or staff in countries where programs are being implemented, that really cemented power dynamic of you hold the money and it's delivered in a down sort of sense. No time or attention or space to begin to understand how racism manifests in an organization and committing the time to do it outside of it. Yeah, but why would you? It was like there's no kind of energy or want or need. But that's my point is why would you? Where's the incentive to do that? I'm asking for a friend. For a white person who benefits from the system, 
what's the incentive? Why do you think about these things? Because from what I see, it just like perpetually seeps you in guilt and shame. (laughs) (laughs) So you're asking me why? Yes. You as an individual, I'm asking you. Because I care about the fact that I'm contributing to a white supremacist space and essentially harming a group of people and isolating and discriminating that doesn't sit with something that like I want to do or contribute to or be a part of. I value equity and equality. So like being part of a white supremacist system doesn't hit with my morals and values. Um, (laughs) Okay, because then you can extrapolate from that that these are valueless, moralless people. If you're not willing willing to look at those things, then like that calls into question what your values are, what your morals are. Oh, definitely. What kind of person you are. Yes. And then that calls into question why the space that we work in, the not-for-profit sector, values people who are valueless. Yes. Why do we do that? Valuing people that are valueless. Because you're describing organizations that still maintain white leadership, still the organization we were just speaking about, looked at the rest of their glass door reviews. And there's five in a row that talk about how it's tokenistic, how it's just like white men, how they pay lip service to gender and diversity and anti-racist mm. approaches. And yet that's an organization that gets a fucking ton of money. Yes. So what does it say about us? Us as in donors, us as in people who, because you still have friends that work there. What does it say about all of us that we are allowing these things to exist as opposed to confronting them, dismantling them, leaving them, divesting from them? Yeah. I just need to take a bite of this donut. I don't want you to call out your friends for being racist, but. Everyone in the organization is racist. (laughs) I don't disagree with you. I'm not asking you to agree or disagree. I'm asking a question like, what does that say about us? It says like the sector, yeah, is just letting things go, probably for the sake of other things. Sometimes the comparative could be like continuing the way they're continuing because it saves lives. There's like a, how can you argue with the fact that they're saving lives kind of thing without the nuanced acknowledgement of whose lives you're saving and or who you're harming in that process. Like sometimes I think that can be an umbrella, a free pass or whatever, especially humanitarian work. In principle, I agree with the concept of values trading. So like you may be able to do a certain type of work in a certain type of context. And like you may say we're a pro trans organization, but if you need to deliver some work, then maybe you're shifting things around the visibility of your values potentially. I know a lot of organizations have to do that in order to deliver their programming. And it's a hard balance of can I deliver within the bulk of my values and perhaps reprioritizing some with this greater good. I understand why organizations do that. And in general, I think unless it's something like you're swapping out your anti-slavery for like, you know, something else. If you don't take it to the extreme, then I think in principle, it's fine. But I think you're creating a kind of there's only two options. Either I save lives while being a racist. Yes, yeah. <laughs> or I can be anti-racist and not save any lives. Yeah. I think that that's not a... I would hope that people aren't making that sort of calculation. It's a very black and white calculation. I wonder if perhaps people within organizations like that are describing their work in the same way that you're thinking about it. 
not that this is necessarily a view you hold, but potentially holding views like that and therefore don't speak up about it. Because I've met your friends who work for that organization. They're not great, but (laughs) just kidding. Do you know what I mean? I think that you would make that argument for yourself. There's a bigger, higher purpose that we're doing. We're saving lives. So I'm not going to talk about the fact that I've been sexually assaulted in my workspace. Do you know what I mean? Though I think people should, because that's the only way you dismantle things like that is to stop thinking about those things as like mutually exclusive things. Yeah, definitely. It was the title of the amnesty report, like good people doing bad. I don't know. I can't remember the title, but it really honed into this idea. Good that- people behaving badly or something. <laughs> yeah, it really. Honed- is that the title of that or is that the title of something we said it should be? <laughs> Let's look it up. Hang on, let me look up the Amnesty Report title. Because it does, I remember, play into this idea that good people are doing bad things, if you like. Amnesty Report. Sorry, I just had to go in and let's do it again. Good people doing good things who cannot do bad things. That's much more convoluted than our title. <laughs> I thought it was better than that. Mm. I've given it more of a I think it was. Tinted. I think that was us. Good people doing good things who cannot do bad things. But this is what a friend of the podcast, Eddie Bailey King, said in terms of the acknowledgement that people are racist. I'm just saying you're a racist. Yeah. It's not creating this dynamic of you are unredeemable yes. and your soul is left into a dark hole or that you're not racist and therefore you are the good. Like it's not creating these binaries. I 100% agree. And I think it is that association with you're racist, therefore you're an absolutely terrible person, which you might be if you're doing terribly racist things publicly and causing harm, but you might also be unintentionally doing racist things, whatever on the spectrum. It's intentionality, I think you're landing on. Yeah, I think you're right. If you intend to be racist... Yeah. If that's your ambition, yeah. You can fuck right off. Then you are a bad person. Then you're a bad. Then bad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I feel about good and bad. There's only that. It's we need it. We need I it mean, to categorize. We really need good and bad. There's to be some people in the middle. <laughs> no, there's nothing in the middle. It's not a spectrum. <laughs> They're buckets. Sorry. Santa said. (laughs) This is where we learned how to categorize people into good or bad based on subjective criteria. Yeah. Santa. Yeah. Santa's been to blame for a lot of things. What a fun little journey we just went on. (laughs) Yes. On my research journey on the racism in the sector, pretty much every household name came up being some kind of not report, but some kind of like news article or something about staff or former staff actually came up a lot as the group of people that said that there was racism happening in that organization. And I think that there's something there about what we were just discussing, people not calling out good people who still work there, maybe. And then only after they've left, do a group of people then come together and actually call it out? I've always felt that the threshold for that has to be really high. What do you mean? From my own experience, I have only called out racism in one job that I've had. Okay. And that was at the humanitarian open street map team because it was so overt, so disgusting, so harmful to my mental health over a prolonged period of time. I only stayed in that role for six months. I yeah. quit that job. A very well-paid job at a time when it was very inconvenient to quit that job. But even after that, still feeling like a lot of residual trauma and post-trauma distress over the things that happened in that job. But that's not the first time that I've experienced racism in the workplace. 
It's just I would consider those previous experiences like microaggressions or micro invalidations, which mm. I think it's easy to convince yourself that it's isolated or that it's small. And so I think the threshold was higher before. You wouldn't say anything unless it reached a certain point that was sufficiently high for you to feel like you needed to say something. Yeah. But I also think now the subtle ways that racism interacts with how an institution or an organization is organized or structured or who gets what or how things are distributed. I think that kind of distributive injustice within those organizations is like enough to start pissing people off. It doesn't now necessarily need to be for an individual. I'm experiencing it. I see how this is unjust and therefore that's a problem that I'm going to raise. Do you see what I mean? I think we've moved beyond like I need to have my own experience of it to I can see that there's something wrong. So now yes. we need to say something. Yeah. I would, Just a guess. I understand how that played out for you. I wonder if that's a bit of a sticking point for lots of white people still, though, in the ability to call out and see it, because it takes some time to understand what that looks like. And I think if someone's not telling you, oh, that was a microaggression or that was racism, let's say you're in a meeting of 10, 15 people and the conversation is flowing and moving and maybe you have to speak or you've got other things on your mind. I think that it takes more concentrated effort to call that out for other people. Yeah. Yeah. My point is that I think more people are calling it out because they themselves don't need to be yeah. experiencing that particular thing, right? Yeah. We've been given a lot of tools in a lot of different spaces to know how to deal with those situations and how to practice dealing yeah. with those types of situations. Yeah. So there's no end of Instagram posts and LinkedIn posts that say like how to be a supportive woman in the workplace, like how to support your black colleagues. Like there's no end to those posts. Yeah, so true. So unless your algorithms are like blocking those things from you because of whatever it is that you're doing, search for that one time and then you'll start seeing them. <laughs> yes. I was just thinking, though, I've never done an anti-racist training or anti-racism training. You're living your training right now. And I know. <laughs> those things came in after I left working for organizations or unconscious bias training or whatever. I'm just curious what the content is because I've never done it myself as to whether it plays out scenarios and as this is what it looks like. This is how you call it out kind of thing. I'm not really a big fan of those sorts of trainings. Which I realize is a controversial thing because a lot of organizations have fought really hard to make unconscious bias, for example, a mandatory part of your HR, your human resources onboarding process. I know that. But like with any type of training, if you just require people to do it once, if you're even remotely savvy on how to like game that system, you're going to whiz through that like your child safeguarding training. You're going to whiz through it in a way that means you've got optimal score. You've scored 100 percent, but you never practice that again. Right. It has to be an ongoing thing. The only time you practice something like safeguarding is if something very overt happens and you've got to fill in a form. And somebody tells you to fill in and then says, go back to this thing to figure out how to fill it in. You need to have ongoing support and practice doing it. Think about all the times when I've said to you, this really aggravates me or I've acknowledged that there's a thing that aggravates me when people don't acknowledge me when I'm the person mm. and like we're together, for example, mm. and I'm the one doing something. Like they won't even acknowledge that I'm there, even though it's like my thing that I've initiated. Yeah, I've yeah. said this to you thousands of times. Yeah. 
even in that process, you don't always get yeah. it right. Yeah, so true. Yeah, I know. So think about that. And that's concentrated. Mm. I'm reminding you, not deliberately, but I'm reminding you by the fact that I say something in that moment yeah. that it's happening. Yes. So that one time I mentioned it a year ago is not going to be helpful to you. It's the same with unconscious bias training, unless it's happening and you're allowed to practice it and see it and look at it and touch it on a fairly routine basis. You're not going to do anything with it. Yeah, that's so true. Don't want to call you out for your bullshit. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you do, with anything, any training, knowledge, awareness, whatever, it has to be consistently reminded of it. I think that's a really good point. I do remember at Oxfam actually in our, I can't remember if it was like bi-weekly or monthly team meetings, we always had to discuss like, they called it like a cultural issue or something. And it would be like a complex situation around how to deal with some safeguarding issue maybe or something that came up within your work. And it was always a grey kind of issue. Like there's no obvious way to deal with it. So then we discuss it like as a group. There's an episode of The Office, which yeah. I wish you would watch, where Holly Flax does a presentation on ethics in the workplace. Okay. <laughs> Please tell me that somebody listening knows which episode I'm talking about, because it's like that. <laughs> You're like, they're discussing a problem and then they all get wrapped up in the fact that it's not an ethical dilemma. And then they all decide that they're going to just say whatever's happened to them, like a particular dilemma. And then it comes out that Meredith has been sleeping with the supplier in exchange for free Outback Steakhouse coupons. <laughs> and so that's the ethical dilemma that they're trying to wrestle with. Okay. I mean, like, what was the ethical dilemma? And she said, whether or not to tell you. <laughs> Anyways, okay. go watch that episode. I might have to start watching the office. You need to watch the episode. So many of the things I say are from there. <laughs> I feel like the generation gap between us grows greater and greater every time I need to make a reference to the office and you don't know what I'm talking about. Oh, wait, are you a boomer? I'm not a boomer, but we are at opposite ends of the millennial spectrum. <laughs> That's right. You talk about doggos. <laughs> Anyway, so I'm moving on. She's so this is now. the end of our podcast. <laughs> this is the last episode. So, Goodbye. Can we go into a bit more detail about the reports and stuff that we've been discussing? Something that every anti-racism document and or report that looks into racism starts with, in fact, every document for the past three years, and you have pointed this out before, is since the killing of George Floyd and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter campaign, Literally, those two things are at mm. the start of every single report I looked at, FCDO1 yeah. included, yeah. Yeah. as the time stamp in which this has come to the forefront. It's because we were like, we're not taking shit anymore. And even trying to find documentation about racism prior to 2019. You will find it, but it'll be under something like diversity or it will yeah. be under it's what you're searching for. That's yeah, different. Okay. We're only now using the words racism, anti-racism, white supremacy, white supremacy. People are still a bit shy about using that. <laughs> but like we're only now using these words because the Black Lives Matter movement injected it into the cultural zeitgeist yeah. in a way that you cannot ignore it. They basically created this social dilemma. If you ignore it, you're going to get ripped to shreds. Yes. That's the, it's not really a dilemma. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's discuss the dilemma. Yeah. I think that it's really reasonable to say that's the moment at which we, as a human society, mm. like 
that was the reckoning that came because mm-hmm. it was so blatant. And the problem is that this has been happening to black and brown people, black and brown men in America for a long fucking time. This is the legacy of slavery. This is the colonial legacy. This has been happening for a long time. And in some ways, because it happens so much, particularly in America, I'm American, I can say this shit, because it happens so often, it becomes easy for it to disappear in the background of your mind because it happens so often. It's hard to keep track of, which is so hard. But with the killing of George Floyd, there was video. Mm. You could see it. You could hear it. And any reasonable human being saw what was happening there and someone being choked to death. You could see it. Yeah. So every reasonable human being could see that this was a problem. But to the point in which you couldn't see otherwise. It took him right. to the point in which there was video evidence and the alternative argument didn't exist. There's no black and white there. And yeah. I mean that in terms of views, not color. I was going to say, <laughs> oh, can we use black and white? Like I've been using it. Anyway. Yeah. Because you're creating two opposite ends. You could say yeah. zero and one. There's no zero and one. <laughs> <laughs> Just still the not point in between. Yeah. Okay. Fine. And I'm also okay with you saying blackboard. Really? Or chalkboard. Okay. Or board of color. I've made this joke before. And sometimes they're green. So I do think that was a moment. Plus, the Black Lives Matter movement came at a time where a lot of stuff was happening for us as a human population. Mm. So I get it. It was a really fortuitous moment. Yeah. Because of where we were and the things that were happening and the strains that we were under. So I understand why it blossomed in such a profound and strong way. And I do think that it is a moment we can punctuate in time where our social consciousness started to change. Yes, I agree. I'm happy for people to say since that moment, it's hard to say like I was a complete bastard the whole time. (laughs) So that's the thing, right? I think it's okay to punctuate in that particular time. I agree. But then to not acknowledge what it looked like before that moment. Sure. I think is the missing bit. And yes, people do go back to colonialism and the roots of the Go sector. back to what? Yeah. <laughs> colonialism. Colonialism. And so they do go back to colonialism and the, and the, the legacy of misogyny. And the <laughs> for sure. But there's not necessarily a perhaps closer set of, as an organization prior to this point in time, we'd only done this and this, or maybe we looked at racism within diversity and inclusion. And now we've decided to bring it like, Maybe just that bit of reflection, I think, is missing a lot. It reminds me a little bit of knives on planes. Expand. So (laughs) it wasn't until 9-11 that we really started to be like, oh, shit, (laughs) people can't have shit like this on planes, Mm -hmm. right? Like something really significant happened and then people realized. And then a substantive shift in the way that we operated took place. And that informed everything beyond it. I think that's very similar, not in terms of devastation and the repercussions, both in the United States and in Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan and our treatment of black and brown people. But I do think that there was a moment And after that moment, everybody changed. Mm -hmm. So you can't think of a time now before 9-11 when you were... There's all sorts of liquids on the plane. Liquids, as many liquids as you want. (laughs) Two liter bottles. Go crazy. You used to be able to smoke on planes. You know, you didn't have to take your shoes off. Yeah. Keep your laptop in your bag. Yeah. Wild. That's not a great example because some countries are now have the sophisticated machines where you can leave your shit in your bag. Yeah, that's true. And in the UK now. Yeah, Heathrow's got it coming. Heathrow's got it coming and now you can take whatever kind of liquid you want. Yeah, no more liquids in 100 ml bags. Good. Because that doesn't make any sense. If I had 100 milliliters of fucking glycerin, 100 milliliters of gasoline can do a lot of damage. 
Yeah. People are going to be like throwing water around. (laughs) Crazy. Hydrochloric acid. 100 milliliters of that. Come on. Crazy. Yeah. Just saying. I do think that there's a problem with not acknowledging Mm. what the organization has been doing within their own history. Yeah. And some other things that come up in the reports in terms of what they found. And a lot of these reports that I'm referencing are reports that were done by external auditors or people to come in and look at an organization and say what's actually been happening in terms of racism and draw that into a report for public reading in some cases. A lot of them mentioned, and I'm talking about Amnesty, IRC, for example, International Rescue Committee. Yeah. UNICEF, United Nations Children Education Fund. Greenpeace and the National Trust. So a lot of them mentioned systemic institutional racism and discrimination. So not that it was with one leader or as individuals, that it was actually systemically across the organization. Which I think is better. Yeah. And not just in a way that you might think. So for the Amnesty Report, for example, it mentioned discrimination by managers to junior staff, but also the other way around, junior staff to managers and senior leadership. Yeah. And maybe one that you might not expect. I can't tell if I like that or not. I don't know. Because it's one kind of power dynamic to break through. Can you break through one power dynamic while reinforcing another? Do they cancel each other out? (laughs) Is no wrong committed if you are? (laughs) Yeah. God. (laughs) I don't know. Clearly not. It's a scary place. I just don't subscribe wholly to the concept of two wrongs don't make a right. I'm sure in some contexts. Yeah. They do. Let's do an episode on that. Would you steal some food to feed your family? That feels like an ethical dilemma that we don't have time for. (laughs) That's one of the examples that's in the office. (laughs) Excellent. Systemic denial and disbelief. And I think disbelief is an interesting one. What like people's reaction to, what are you talking about? That doesn't happen here. Gaslighting. Invalidation of people's feelings. Complaints not addressed or taken seriously. And also the processes that enable complaints to be taken seriously. And the accountability, I think, is a substantial problem. Stereotypes and labeling, people not drawing attention to the fact that that is a stereotype and that they're labeling groups of people. Should I stop calling you a lazy woman then? (laughs) (laughs) And especially, I think, because in our sector, we often feel that we need to categorize people and label people. So what that looks like internally. And this is a good example from... There was a report I read by civilsociety.co.uk and it was talking about the action aid racism and... The summary said in the audit identifies shared experiences of sweeping stereotypical statements and actions towards people of color that are then explained away, ignored or denied with the common phrase. They didn't mean it that way. (laughs) And that they didn't mean it that way being. I wish I could use that as an argument. Mm -hmm. I wish I could use that as an argument because there's a lot of people I'd punch straight in the mouth. I didn't mean it that way. There's so many things that are wrapped up in that, right? There's a little bit of white fragility that comes into that. I can understand why white people are so afraid to acknowledge the obvious. I have some sympathy for you all because it's very confronting to realize that everything you built off my back, what are you? You can't even be in the sun for very long. (laughs) (laughs) I'm out. I can understand why, not you specifically, obviously, I'm just kidding, but I can understand why people would be like, it's a joke. I wasn't meaning it that way. Oh, we have a particular rapport without really recognizing it. Like I've had friends who I think are people who are close to me who have made comments that have made me feel really uncomfortable. And they've Mm -hmm. been like, oh, I don't mean it like that at all. Like we can talk like this. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And I think that it is easy to confuse those things and to confuse those relationships. It's not an easy world to navigate, mainly because you white people haven't really had to do this work for very long. Yeah. 
I can understand you're still trying to figure this shit out. And I can understand that organizations are still trying to figure it out because they've been like white supremacy, misogyny, colonialism, heteronormativity. These are things that have been thriving in our space for as long as it's existed, for as long as the idea of you doing something over someplace else has existed. Yeah. We've been doing shit like this. So I get it. And if you're just using the emergence of Black Lives Matter as a profound movement as Mm. your moment in time, that's only like a few years. Yeah. (laughs) It's really not very long in the kind of grand scheme of social change. Yeah. And nobody's really been asking you to do it. And still with organizations now, like when we try to talk about a model that's led by rights holders, you don't like this word, but I like it. Describing what we used to call beneficiaries, what we call now rights holders as clients. I like the word clients because I think that what it does is it reframes accountability. It reframes power because if you view somebody as your client, you want to make them happy. You want to make sure that their needs are met and they are holding you to account for something. Anyways, when we try to center the feedback and expectations of an organization's clients, even that dynamic is really hard to break. It doesn't surprise me that it's difficult. And I think it should be difficult because you all made a real mess of things. So got a lot of you got a lot of wrongs to right. do. But I think they're really complicated social dynamics that if we could fix them really easily, then we wouldn't be in this problem. Agreed. I think that probably your first bit is anybody who's a denier needs to go. Yeah. I think that you can say, oh, that's not what I meant as a genuine feeling. But if you are a denier, mm-hmm. I think there's no space for that because there's no space to grow. Yeah. I agree. And I think that's what this is referring to more the ignoring and denying yeah. element. I think that something that's come up for me is the lack of any substantive progress toward localization. Now, I do have issues with that phrase as well, localization, the idea that you're bringing development closer to the people Mm. who are intended to benefit from your actions. I just don't think that there's been anything like we're now localization was in the grand bargain in 2016. You and I are still trying to help organizations advance their localization agenda as of 2022. So six years on from that and big organizations. So there's no loosening of that firm white grip. (laughs) on what is done, how it's done, who should benefit, why, how that decision making is made. And that reinforces white supremacy. That reinforces those northern colonial north-south, even though I don't really like that phrasing either, north-south colonial dynamics. Like it's still reinforcing those things because we're so fucking slow to give up any control. Yeah. And we definitely don't want to give it to somebody who's brown. And we know some organizations who will move their headquarters to a browner place and then just fill it with a bunch of white people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's tokenistic for sure. I can't cope with it. It's worse than tokenistic, though, yes, isn't it? For sure. Localization, I think, unfortunately, will remain on the agenda for the next five years. If we've done dick all to fix it or to address it, then yeah. And unfortunately, because I think it will go back to As we saw with the Pledge for Change, international non-governmental organizations coming back together to say, why has this gone wrong? How can we do this better? And it will be a lot of those kinds of meetings again. Actually, the New Humanitarian put localization as in their top five policy agendas for this year. I'll put the link in the show notes if anyone is interested in reading it. But yeah, it's revisiting the same old, really, which is why I use the word, unfortunately, because I haven't heard any new thought maybe around it. 
And I don't know if I'm looking for some kind of non-existent innovation or switch in a way of thinking yeah. about it. And maybe it is about dropping the word localization altogether and actually reframing the narrative entirely. Yeah, I don't really care so much about the words that are being used. I have issues with what it's called because I don't like it when we say, oh, the local. It just sure, feels yeah. like it's the kind of contemporary version of native yeah. <laughs> it just feels a bit weird to me. When you say like local populations, it doesn't feel like a far jump from the natives. And that just all feels a bit weird. So I don't yeah. like localization for that reason. It just feels funny to me. Yeah. And I think that's the evolution of the thing, the acknowledgement that localization is not what like umbrella group of people living in X country. You've got maybe young people living in urban areas, indigenous people somewhere else. You might have refugees on the border. Like the whole country is made up of an intersectional myriad of people. And localization, yes, myriad. <laughs> just, just can't change the way I say that word. It's stuck forever. Which may be a way to disentangle a little bit of that policy agenda, but let's see. But I don't even think it needs to be because now you're recategorizing people, right? Yeah, definitely. Like Ugh, even same. in that, you've just named a yeah. kind of number of yeah. strata. Yes. So when I say I don't really care about what it's called, I don't really care what policy term is applied to it. And I don't like the word for the reasons I mentioned before, but I don't really care what you call it because it's about the actions that you take, yeah, you meaningfully take. Call it whatever you want. You say you're pushing decision making to whatever group you want. I don't really care. It's that you've defined what that principle or that ambition means to you and how you're going to do it. And you're doing it now. Yeah, that's all with whatever population or subset of the population you want to. It doesn't matter to me. It's about actually seeing organizations meaningfully do it. And I say meaningfully because I see organizations who say we work in partnership and we work in active participation with blah, 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 blah. Or, These are our partners and we do this. I have not seen anyone shift decision making. I have not seen any of that. If you can say that how you're working is that you don't decide anything, show me. I've seen some good stuff by the Dutch government on the way that they're structuring their funding to consortiums. So their current policy frameworks mean that an organization in the Global South has to lead the consortium and the other organizations within it don't have to be from the Global North, but they can be because there is a global value add sometimes in the networks that are offered. So I think that's a good indicator from the Dutch government of how they want things to work and who they want to be making the lead decisions. I'm going to say that back. I have seen one organization that does that, the DPP. Yes, the Durable Peace Program. The Durable Peace Program. We did an evaluation for them in Myanmar and they did that. A consortium that was led by organizations based in Myanmar. And I can say that they made a lot of the decisions. Yes. That's good. It's a good one to bring up. Yeah. Cool. There were a few things that were wrong with that program, so you don't need to emulate it. But in <laughs> terms of being, yeah, lots to learn. <laughs> I think that's a good example of one that's yeah. like decisions were not being made by the white boy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> What's his name? I think that's a really good example of one. Yes. So let's talk about the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, which in and of itself, is it not colonial? Because it says Commonwealth in it. The Commonwealth, not a colonial invention. Yeah. There's the, but there's the, yeah, yes. But there's the Commonwealth Club and the Commonwealth where the British monarchy still governs it as head of state. 
Like that's what I mean. Two separate things. But that's what I mean. Is not the concept of a commonwealth a colonial invention? Yes. Okay. Also, I've never really it's thought about... they've retained the, the name then. Is it still the FCDO or is it just the FDO? No, it's the FCDO. Anyway, I've never really thought about that it's like commonwealth, like we have a commonwealth. No, it's not true. I don't think it means commonwealth. Yeah. I know. I but know. I understand that thinking about the words <laughs> derivation. <laughs> Which is another office joke. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay oh, moving on. The FCDO, Foreign Commonwealth Development Office, did a report, a review of racial disparities in the aid sector. Quick question. Foreign Commonwealth or foreign comma Commonwealth? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Because then would you have a non-foreign Commonwealth? Words matter, Lauren. I know, but they're also just words. <laughs> Shout out to Eddie. So they did a report. Loads of organizations were interviewed about it. And all the organizations at the end, they wrote their letters. Of, um, you know how long it would take a native English speaker to read that report? Oof. Two hours, two and a half hours? Three hours and 18 minutes. That is a really long time. That's a long time. I don't have three hours and 18 minutes. And if you haven't listened to that episode with Eddie Bailey King, go and listen to it. A wealth of information because that's three hours and 18 minutes if you don't have the care issues... Yeah. If you've got the ability to digest technical language, there's so many problems with it. They should have made a video. That would have been good. <laughs> I don't know what the video would have been about. <laughs> so lots of organizations contributed to your interviews and lots of them submitted letters of affirmation. I agree with this. I don't know what you call that. All of those letters. Were- Whitewashing. Yeah. I think it's the one you're looking for. Yeah. And one of those letters were a bit gross because they were like, we think you should focus on child protection to help with this report. Yeah. From the child protection organization. You have entered the spin zone. <laughs> Next letter. We think you should focus on girls education from a girls education organization. Like just yeah. rubbing it- like my own ego here. <laughs> it was like a Trojan horse for their own bullshit <laughs> agendas. It was really gross. <laughs> and I've got to say... That report, while being a good indicator of where the sector needs to go, are the FCDO the right people to be doing that? You've got 10 members of parliament who are part of some international development committee, most of them white people from the UK. Are you the right people to be talking about racism in the sector? Who's in charge of them now? It was Penny before, wasn't it? And then Pretty Patel. Who's in charge of them now? James Cleverly. Who's that? I don't know what his background is. He, I think, is the international development minister. No, isn't he the foreign minister? Then who's the international development minister? Yeah, James Cleverly, Foreign Commonwealth and Development Affairs. Okay, there we go then. It is foreign, comma, Commonwealth, by the way. <laughs> I'm glad we clarified that. <laughs> so I question a little bit whether they were the right people to do this. They found the same things as the other reports that I read earlier. Charities not working in partnership with black led organizations, black people disproportionately affected by poverty and inequality, perpetuated by charities, things that we already know. They wanted people to set targets for leadership and so on. But the one point I wanted to mention was it talks about the sector holding itself accountable or being accountable for these actions. And the FCDO included, Foreign Commonwealth Development Office included, their own needs in this to action some of it. Fine. But it does not in any way say how that looks. what that accountability measure is, who is going to hold them accountable, nothing. And so with a lot of these reports, it's that kind of stop point. We've acknowledged it. We recognize that we had a role in it. This is what we found in our storytelling, our fundraising practices. We need to hold ourselves accountable. And, but what does that look like? And so I think that was a bit disappointing, at least from my perspective, and the potential to call on black-led organizations or civil society or people to call these organizations to account and start to switch that narrative a bit. But there we go. That's all I really wanted to say on that. Okay. 
you say have black-led organizations call them to account what do you mean by that i guess where are they going have they changed is this just a tokenistic like i gave my thoughts in an interview kind of end this report set out things that need to change and there's conclusions and recommendations but what are you talking about with black-led organizations being the ones who hold these organizations to account on whether they've changed or not why or civil society in general the thing that you're saying is black-led organizations need to be the sheriffs of this thing and like you all need to hold yourselves to account i agree but i guess okay maybe as like a role alongside many others but i don't think it needs to be specifically black-led organizations that have a role in holding other people to account Mm. as distinct from anyone else. I don't think there's any utility in saying black-led organizations, you need to tell them if they're fucking it up. That for me just feels like another way in which we're asking black and brown people to yeah. like help that's a fair point but I, know. I, I guess what i'm saying then more broadly is like their role within whatever this kind of process is or like a role in as one of the recommendations was working with them and like partnering with them if they want you if they want you <laughs> Yeah. I don't think that we should be relying on black and brown organizations to like help with the racism problem. I fundamentally think that it's about all organizations looking at how they are tackling racism at scale. So for me, because there's anti-black racism within communities of color that also exists. There's a lot of ways in which I think it just needs to be the collective responsibility for everyone to hold everyone to account for the ways in which their organizations may be reinforcing it. I Mm. just don't think it's useful to separate black and brown led organizations as needing to have a role in it. There needs to be space if they want to be in that space. Yeah, it's their choice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I worry slightly that as a little bit with the pledge change that we saw, but Adeso was there as an organization that was facilitating that. And they're a Somalia-led organization Mm -hmm. that it becomes a bit like a white people's book club or an echo chamber of NGOs, like saying this is how it is and this is how it should be. And to some extent, the inclusion of Adesa and Dagan Ali as their CEO, maybe, and I don't know yet because I haven't seen the outcomes, could facilitate it in a direction that's realistic and like better grounded in needs. We've talked about the pledge for change and how a lot of the language in the pledges reinforces us, them, north, south dynamics. So that's not a great example in my mind of what that process could be. I think it may have been a really good opportunity for a lot of these organizations to say, look at how great we are. We're partnering with an organization that's X, Y, Z, but still reinforcing the same. We talked about the pledge for change, so I'm not going to rehash it, but I didn't see anything new in that. I didn't see any language that was going to tip the scales. And in fact, felt like it was reinforcing the same old message, the same old narrative. Mm. It's just the packaging is a little bit different. Yeah. <laughs> I take your point about the White People's Book Club, but in the example of the White People's Book Club that you inadvertently created in your monitoring and evaluation group, when you very rightly raised the question of why aren't conversations about race and racism occurring in whatever space, then you accidentally created an offshoot because people were like, oh, let's get together and talk about this and read this book together, which I know you had complicated feelings about. There were black and brown people who wanted to join and who wanted to be part of that. Yes. It wasn't, hey, can you help us with this? Do you know what I mean? At least we didn't see that from the outside. So I think that just needs to be it. I don't think we need to put any more responsibility on these organizations to be icons in the sector, be black-led, brown-led, and inspirational bucking bosses in this space. This is, I'm describing myself. And then also ask them to help hold white people accountable. I just think that space needs to be open for them if they choose to be part of that. 
because like we'll tell you if your shit is fucked up as will the people working within your organizations as we started this with if foreign commonwealth and development office starts going off the rails with their white people book club i'm not saying they're creating one but if they started to presumably somebody would say something to them (laughs) (laughs) i hope so but let's see if that is part of a bigger series of looking at the philosophy and culture of the aid sector so there presumably will be continual opportunities to look into other parts of what's going wrong in the aid sector what Um, i would be curious to know is who was commissioned to do the external reports and how they were chosen and what latitude they were given mm. because we are independent consultants yeah we go into organizations and we look at the evidence we talk to people and from that we form conclusions we challenge and validate those conclusions with people who work in the organization and then we write a report not everything we have to say gets put into that report and not every opinion that we hold gets put there or is challenged. There's often a bit of a tense yeah. back and forth yeah. with us because we want to be very candid about what we've seen, experienced, heard, or reflecting back to them and what they want put in a public report. So I just wonder what's not there. Do you know what they need? Undercover boss. That'd be so cool. Yeah, I think Sarah Champion was the key driver of that report and she wrote the report. Who's that? She's an MP. She did not write the a report. A member of parliament. It says yours sincerely, Sarah Champion at the bottom. But <laughs> executive directors do that in yeah, the tops yeah, of their yeah, annual yeah. reports all the time. Yeah. One other thing that was in the Amnesty report is around protectionism in terms of individual teams defending and protecting their work to the extent that challenges from other teams were met with hostility. And this fed into the elitist and expert notion of the nature of working practices and also encouraging silo working culture, which I guess created this kind of notion that people weren't talking to each other or creating a culture of learning or openness to of racism. That's where I'm going. I'm guessing that there's some connections to this elitism, white people, supremacy culture that meant that people were just in their teams rather than looking at the wider cultural changes that needed to happen. That was an interesting point because it hampered learning apparently, which I guess could relate to anti-racism learning. Yeah, Yeah, I think you're making a lot of assumptions there. (laughs) It's hard to comment without understanding the context of where that... I'm reading the text from the report. But it's hard to know how it's connected to racism. I'll read it. So importantly, this hampers learning because such a closed approach to working is an athema to sharing and seeking other views and perspectives and in Indeed, to admitting inappropriate circumstances, I don't know. So what does it have to do with racism? It says it feeds into the elitist and expert notion of the nature of working. So I suppose this kind of elitism and expertise culture meant that they weren't like open to learning about what was and wasn't working and learning about like anti-racism practices. And yes, I'm making an assumption. I don't know. It's hard to know. It's hard to comment on that because I don't really know how it's related. And then another one that says we identified a powerful impulse of protectionism in the organization that was revealed in many aspects of organizational function delivery, the urge to protect the brand and to maintain the excellent reputation of the organization, which in and of itself is not a bad thing, became toxic when it tiptoed around a negative connotation and left it to furtively gnaw its way into the organizational culture unaddressed and uncontrolled. Yeah. Yeah, not unsurprising though. All organizations do that. I found it interesting that the report drew to light that idea of protectionism that was around work and stuff. I've seen it myself, but I'd never seen it acknowledged in a report or that kind of, this is my work and this is for a team and yeah, the ways of working. Can you say that again about the protectionist piece? Because I'm interpreting that as very different than what you're saying now. Can you just read it again? 
we identified a powerful impulse of protectionism in the organization that was revealed in many aspects of organizational function and delivery. But in this case, the urge to protect the brand and to maintain the excellent reputation of the organization, which is in itself not a bad thing. That's the bit that I'm thinking about that I'm focusing on. The brand, the protection of the brand is what I'm thinking about. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I'm confusing those two things. There's one about the brand and then it goes on to individual teams defending and protecting their work. Mm. So I think it's probably like both sides and a brand as a whole and then teams individually. That doesn't surprise me though, because if you said I spent 37.5 hours a week doing whatever, you would Mm. want to defend that work. Yeah. So that you didn't look like you were fucking off for 37.5 hours a week. So of course you're going to narrow yourself into that space. And I do think that it becomes harder to challenge because we see that all the time when we're doing evaluations with people and we're like, oh, there's some areas for improvement. Then people get very defensive about what they've done. In rare occasions, have we seen people who are open to critical reflection on their own work? It's very rare. We have seen it and it's been amazing. Those are the best evaluations because people are like willing to look at where they could have done better. It's a unique quality. It's one I don't have to be. (laughs) I don't like being criticized on my work at all. So I think there's something to that, which I think is fine. Like people don't want to have other people digging into their work and criticizing where they could have done better, especially where it intersects with social things. So I feel like that's not crazy to me. And organizations will hire whole companies to manage their brand. They look at risk management. Generally, what you'll find on a lot of corporate risk registers, and I use the word corporate to relate to also fairly large non-governmental organizations as relatively distinct from civil society organizations, they will have something on reputational risk and an assessment of reputational risk. And that includes anything that has to do with their brand, what might be damaging. When I was working at Plan International, when the issue of sexual abuse in Haiti came out when I was working at Plan International, that was with Oxfam. Hmm. And we had a whole task force that came together and we dug into every single program to see if we had some issues there because we were worried about the reputational risk that could come back to our organization if there was something that came out that we didn't lead on and that we didn't own up to before it got to us. There's whole teams that get pulled together to look at reputation and look at the brand. We've talked about this before in terms of writing negative things in people's reports when people feel like they've got to get ahead of it because they've got to protect the brand. If that folds, you've got nothing. In the case of Oxfam, they lost government funding for a really long time. So it doesn't surprise me that people are a bit scared of admitting when they fucked something up. Yeah, I think you're right, though. There's perhaps a connection to how that protectionism manifests within or across racist practices in an organization that may be in the report that I haven't just pulled out. So Mm. I'll have a look for that. I guess what's a way forward? Because we are very good at being critical about stuff. For the organizations that we've been talking about? As opposed to? The sector as a whole. (laughs) I think probably the sector as a whole. Okay. I don't know. I've not really thought about the way forward in general across the sector. You have specific recommendations for these organizations? (laughs) Yeah, I've evaluated everyone. I see the sector responding through its anti-racism training, which we've mentioned needs to be more frequent. And there could be like a tokenistic approach to that, which needs to be addressed. People are doing internal audits and assessments and introspection. People are putting out public statements around like how they're doing it whether that's meaningful or not. People are also opening offices, like an office of anti-racism or an office of diversity, inclusion and equality. And it's led by the brownest person they could find. (laughs) Probably, sadly. So people are generating 
capacity in some cases by opening offices to try and deal with it. A good practice I came across, I don't know if it's good practice, I mean, revise that because I actually don't know. But the Ford Foundation committed to what's being called an inside out approach to address internal racism and bias, including creating an office to lead it. And so they're having a bit more introspection to what it means internally in the organization and externally. I feel like a lot of the reports I've read look at the internal practice rather than the external practice. There are just some things I found of how people are responding to it, whether it is sufficient or not. Yeah, but we're talking about the way forward, not how they're doing it. Yeah, that's just like a bridge to that. How do you think they should be doing it? How should they be doing it? I'm not sure. I've not really thought about this, what good practice looks like. I feel like how it should be approached is as an individual and an organizational level. And I worry that individually people are not also taking that journey and like looking at anti-racism outside of the organizations too. And coming back into an organization with perhaps more knowledge, experience, awareness or ways of being themselves. And I actually think what's happening is that organizations are approaching anti-racism practices and approaches as like the organization and as you exist within that organization, rather than extending it to the fact that you might be running through Battersea Park this morning and there could be racism happening around you then as well or other things that you could come across. So I wonder how I'd like to see it as more of a whole person approach and who and what you exist with rather than like just in the organization. Because I think that's how you start to change and bring better awareness but I don't know if people are already doing that. I can guarantee you there's racism happening in Battersea Park. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) certainly. (laughs) Did I say if? (laughs) If you come across some racism that might be taking place, may or may not be taking place. Sorry, when? (laughs) Yeah, okay. I really hate the idea of having office of racism, an office, because you relegate ownership for taking things forward on that office. Yeah, it sounds quite official. I don't care. What you do is you hire then the brownest person you can find, and now it's their responsibility to fix racism in your organization. That's how it's happened. Every racial justice lead I've ever met has been brown, which I don't object to. I think it's good. It's like the tampon was a tampon czar in Scotland or wherever that was. And they hired a man to do that job. Do you remember? <laughs> and they had to change it. No? Yeah, because everybody got pissed off. So they just closed <laughs> the office. <laughs> Who told us that? <laughs> I was talking about it before. We had to look it up. So it's, I'm not necessarily saying that it should be like a white person. Mm. But I think we need to stop finding like black, brown, marginalized communities to lead these things that are about fixing our racism, our misogyny, our heteronormativity, all that good stuff. I think what it needs to be is within every single job description, you have something there and up whatever your hierarchical chain, it is the responsibility of somebody to hold you to account for that. It's in your job description to do whatever. It's in your manager's job description to check that you're doing whatever. It's in their managers all the way up to your CEO. And then it's your board's responsibility and your board is a diverse board that's comprised of a number of different stakeholders who have a vested interest in your organization, including additional staff that are part of that board. Or you have, I've seen sometimes shadow boards, which are comprised of staff or other interested parties, former staff in some cases, but those shadow boards aren't really empowered to do anything. 
finding ways to make it everybody's responsibility to be a little bit less of a dick every day that they go into work and finding ways to call it out is the only way I see something substantive happening. I also see that as being a really important part when you put it in your job description, a really important accountability piece because you review your job description once a year during your performance review. How are you doing? How are you getting along with that? That's not the only time I think that should be reviewed. I think you should have moments in time where you're routinely reflecting on it, like what you were describing before about this monthly or whatever time Mm. where people reflect on challenging conversations or challenging discussions. I think those are really good opportunities to learn in environments that get created that are supportive of people learning. I don't think it helps anybody to be like, you're racist, that's bad. I think it's about you're a racist. Let's look at that (laughs) really quickly, right? Let's look at it and let's see how you could have responded differently in a situation or why this situation may be offensive to somebody, whatever, like you're finding regular moments to do that in a safe space. It's not a value judgment. Yeah. It's an opportunity for everyone to help everyone to learn. Definitely. And that also requires people to admit that they've done a racist thing. Your starting place is that everybody's racist. Definitely. But I also think that if you're starting place, everyone is a racist. That's one thing. Like people are getting comfortable with the fact that I'm a racist. But then the next thing is, okay, here's a racist incident that I did, which I think is like another level of that needs to be a space where that's okay too. To be like, yes, I'm a racist. And I did a racist incident yesterday. Like I was on the the. Your tube. phrasing is the whitest thing I've ever heard Sorry, you say. No. I did a racist incident yesterday. I was here's how I was a racist yesterday. I yeah. did whatever on the tube or in Battersea Park or whatever. And so to admit that, and then to have someone come back to you and say, "This is how you could have dealt with that better." And a non-judgmental space with that, because you're coming forward with something that I think wrestles with a lot of uncomfortability for white people. Discomfort. Discomfort and comfortability. <laughs> I'm really trying to start that word. And so that then it's a culture of, yes, accept it like we're all racist. And how could I have dealt with that better? I would have found that so helpful. Yeah. I as someone who's growing. This is why they pay me the big bucks. <laughs> but I really think that that kind of two-way exchange and someone saying maybe you could have done this or here's how you can become more aware of that next time. Yeah, there's a couple of challenges there. It will take a long time for somebody to realize that they engaged in racist behavior. Your general unintentional racism. Yeah. That's hard. I think it takes something very specific to be like, what I did was racist. Yeah. Can we all learn from that? So before we even get to the space of talking about, here's what I did, I need help working through this. It's recognizing that you've done it. Yes. Especially if you're like not a white robe racist. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's Mm. harder. So I think it's about a space of you were racist. This was a racist action that you took. Yeah. Let's talk about that. And now it's not up to you to like volunteer that information. It's for you to absorb that information and then process and learn from that information. Yeah. So it's like a two-way thing. Like I need to be able to tell you that you're doing racisms. Yeah. Versus you having a space to share your racisms. Yes. Yes. (laughs) You're right. You're right. They exist in the same space, but they require different skills. And one is very hard to do. Yeah. That's so true. Should we start that? Yeah. Between us? Yes. Because I've got a list here of racist actions that you do. (laughs) (laughs) Is that why you brought donuts (laughs) to help with the safe space? Yes. Every safe space was built off of baked goods. Yeah. I wonder if this van could become like an anti-racist safe space where someone could just come in. If somebody comes into this van uninvited, (laughs) they're going to get kicked in the teeth. No, but I mean a religious confessions booth. Confessional. Yeah. (laughs) 
I've got a confession. Okay. Sort of thing. My racist confession. Yes. Although I feel a bit awkward about associating it with a confession. So maybe let's think about that a bit more. I'm happy to go on the journey of thinking about racism as not a taboo subject. I don't know if I want that to happen in my living space. (laughs) Yes, fair enough. So maybe we could put a curtain up here or something. (laughs) Just in the front cab. Yeah. Okay, so that is my way forward. What I think we should do is get out of the idea that someone or some team or some office is responsible for doing this. Everybody's job description, have this included in your performance reviews, create some metric, how many black and brown people did you open a door for today? And how many donuts did you buy? But then I also think it's about moving toward reforming systems as a whole. But I think you do that when you make it everyone's responsibility. So when you put it as a competency or you put it as a requirement in your role, then you would do it, right? So if you think about human resources, more inclusive human resources practice and recruitment practices, if you had competencies or I'm loath to say key performance indicators, but if you had key performance indicators that were rooted in anti-racist practice, then the way you hire changes, the way you recruit changes. Yes. If you did it with finance, the way you, I don't know what finance people do, the way you do whatever it is you do, the way you budget, would change, the way you do your budgeting yeah. would change. The way you do whatever, all of those things would change if you made it everyone's responsibility. So that's the systemic piece that I think you address by rooting it in role specific competencies that are then also anchored to an assessment of your performance. Yeah. I don't want to be a white supremacist, but put it in the job descriptions and have key performance indicators. (laughs) (laughs) It's assessed on your performance. Yes. And I think. To take it one step, I don't see this as much, but 360 degree reviews. Yeah, I used to do those Oxfam. Yeah. I don't see it loads, but I know some organizations still do it. When I was working in the private sector, we did all the time. I don't know why it was more prevalent there than it has been for me in this space, but whatever. But then if you have other people feeding back on your performance within this space, then I think that's... Yeah, that's a really good idea. I think it's good. I'm glad you think it's a good <laughs> idea because we put it in a so, in a recommendation for how to become more gender transformative. I'm glad you like the idea because I took it from us. <laughs> oh, jolly good. I just said forgot and I'd got such a good idea before. If you think about it in every single role, that's how you do it. Because think about somebody in business development. If part of your key performance indicator, part of your performance is about how you influence donor to be more anti-racist. Yeah. How you deal with that, how, with your advocacy. If it sits in every role, like that's how you get everybody involved. It's how you bring people on board. That's how you see systemic change is by making it everyone's responsibility by using role specific key performance indicators. I can't make it any more tangible than that. <laughs> you know, I like the integration across everyone and every role and every responsibility is a really good kind of systemic piece. And then I think that then just to take that internal and expand that to their external life. And maybe that's less of the organization's responsibility, but hopefully by anti-racism becoming an integrated role and responsibility internally, people will expand that into their external lives as well. Okay. I'd hope it'd be like a trickle down. I feel that trickle down. Okay. Yeah. Trickle down economics. Trickle down economics. That's what we're talking about. Nothing else. Cool. All right. Well, yeah, this has been a really interesting episode. Good. I've learned a lot about racism in the sector. Yeah. Everyone is facing like similar challenges. Yes. And Tia's got a fantastic way forward. So she'll charge you only 500 pounds a day to get that implanted. 550. That overheads. <laughs> Inflation. I'm Tia. I'm Lauren. And this has been Le Journée 
de transformation. Great. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.